Welcome to the Hillel at Home podcast, where we bring you dynamic conversations with Jewish celebrities, thought leaders, students, and Hillel professionals. Together, we'll learn, laugh, process current events, reflect on our changing world, and of course, schmooze. I'm your host, Zach Epstein, co-chair of the Hillel International Student Cabinet and a senior at the University of Texas at Austin. In this episode, we'll look back on our spring 2020 conversation with the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom. Rabbi Sachs taught that Passover has a deep message of hope at a time of great fear and uncertainty. It's only when we let our suffering connect to us with other people, just as we're doing right now, that we begin to turn the bread of affliction into the bread of freedom. Over the course of his lifetime, Sachs gained fame both in the secular world and in Jewish circles, authoring more than 20 books. He was a sought-after voice on issues of war and peace, religious fundamentalism, ethics, and the relationship between science and religion, among other topics. This episode was recorded on March 24th, 2020, during the first weeks of COVID-19 lockdowns, when students entered into a Passover holiday that would look different than any they had known. Rabbi Sachs provided a message of inspiration during a time of fear, connection in a time of dislocation, and responsibility in a time of need. Rabbi Sachs passed away on November 7, 2020, having taught and inspired so many of our students and professionals through their years. Rabbi Sachs often shared a lesson that we deeply emulate in Hillel. Good leaders create followers. Great leaders create other leaders. While he has left the world far too soon, we are all blessed that he had many exceptionally prolific years and his profound words are accessible to us all. Yehi zichro baruch. May his memory be a blessing and may we continue to learn from his example and his wisdom. And now, without further ado, we turn to Rabbi Sachs' interview. I want you to know how much I feel for you. I'm sitting here in my self-imposed isolation here in my study at the top of the house. And uh, obviously we're all confined and we're all in this together. In fact, the whole world is in this together. And the most important thing that I want to say is that we will get through this. The classes will resume. You will uh, get your degrees. Life will begin again. But in the meantime, pikoach nefesh, looking after yourself and preserving and protecting life is the highest of all mitzvot. And really, you know, we have to set a good example of staying safe following government guidelines and so on. And we thank Hashem and his agents down here on earth who have given us all these electronic means of communication that we wouldn't have had even 10 years ago that allow us to connect in this way. Let me just say what I'd like to do right now. I'd just like to spend a few minutes thinking specifically about what this coronavirus and its repercussions have to tell us about us and especially about Pesach. And do our timeless teachings have something to say about this very time-bound phenomenon? And then we'll do the little shiur that I've prepared the source sheets for, and we'll hopefully discover something about the Haggadah, something about the Seder night that you may not have noticed before. So number one, where are we in this time of great devastation and great fear? Number one, I was always puzzled by the opening of the Seder, this is the bread of, of, of affliction that our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. All those who are hungry, come and eat. 
Astronomy is a really odd thing to say. Come and share some bread of affliction. That's not the kind of hospitality that we're used to. And I wondered, why is it that the Seder begins by saying, yeah, you know, you've got some affliction, share it with others. And it was only when I read Primo Levi's book about the Holocaust, Primo Levi was a survivor of Auschwitz, his great book, If This Is a Man, that there was one passage that suddenly answered the whole question for me. According to Primo Levi, even worse than Auschwitz itself was the 10 days during which uh, after the Germans left and took whatever prisoners could walk on the, on the death march, there were 10 days between then and the Russian soldiers arriving. And for those 10 days, all that were left in Auschwitz were the people in the hospital who were desperately ill, and there was no electricity, no food, no anything. The Nazis had taken everything away. And there they were in the bitter winter in January 1945, with nothing to eat and nothing to keep warm. And somehow, a couple of the prisoners were able to take some wood and light a fire and find some food. And Primo Levi says this, when the broken window was repaired and the stove began to spread its heat, something seemed to relax in everyone. At that moment, Tovarovsky, one of the um, prisoners, proposed to the others that each of them offer a slice of bread to us three who had been working. And so it would so it was agreed. And this is what Primo Levi writes. Only a day before, a similar event would have been inconceivable. The law of the lager, the law of the prison said, eat your own bread, and if you can, that of your neighbor. It left no room for gratitude. What this act of somebody offering me a slice of bread meant was the law of the lager was dead. It was the first human gesture that occurred among us. I believe that that moment can be dated as the beginning of the change by which we who had not died slowly changed from prisoners to human beings again. That simple act of sharing the bread of affliction was the beginning of freedom. That's what Premier Levy said. If we can share our sorrows with others, we have already begun along the road to redemption. Because the first thing that sorrows do for us, or suffering, is turn us in upon ourselves. And then, of course, bad things happen because we can never really individually solve these big problems. It's only when we let our suffering connect us with other people, just as we're doing right now, that we begin to turn the bread of affliction into the bread of freedom. So let me first of all ask of you, if you have the chance before Seder night, make sure that you do one favor for somebody who's not able to do their own shopping, just get some Pesach food for them, a packet of matzahs, whatever it is. Make sure that since you can't physically be with them, nonetheless, you can share some food with them. That will be a great mitzvah, reaching out to others in their eyes. I think secondly, it's important for us to remember that Jews did something which we take for granted nowadays because of these electronic media, but which was never done before. After the destruction of the Second Temple, Jews were scattered all over the world. And despite that, and they were a minority everywhere and usually without rights, despite that, they saw themselves and were seen by others as one nation, as Amechad. No other people was like that. Jews were the world's first global people. And if we ask, what was it that kept them together as a people who short, short answer is that they sensed this sense of common identity, which 
is exactly what happens on Pesach, when we tell the story of who we are, where we came from, who our ancestors were, and we hand that story on to the youngest child of the family who is asking Manishtana. And that identity was based not on being in a particular land or a city or a, even speaking a particular language, because Jews in France spoke French and Jews in Cairo spoke Arabic, and their language of everyday speech was not the same. But the fact is that they kept Pesach at the same time and told the same story in the same way. Even though there were at least four different ways of telling the story, because there was a wise son and a wicked son and a simple son and the son who couldn't ask. But nonetheless, they were sitting around the same table telling the same story. It was that ability to tell that story that made all Jews everywhere in the world feel when one Jew suffers, we all suffer. When one Jew feels pride, we all feel pride. There is a concept of Kol Yisrael Arabian Zerbezer. We're all connected with one another. Jews became the first virtual people, and the Torah became the world's first internet. It connected Jews wherever they were. So the fact that we are not able physically to be together this year, and all sorts of Pesach plans have had to be cancelled, nonetheless, the mere fact that we are all telling the same story pretty much the same way means we are connecting with one another in a way that our ancestors did for 2,000 years before anyone even thought of the word globalization. So I do hope you feel that um, while you're doing the Seder night, you kind of feel in the virtual presence of Jews around the world who are doing exactly that. And we hope that very soon Hashem will allow us physically to get together, but at least mentally we're together. Okay, now we're going to have a look at uh, the Shior, and it goes like this. When I, whenever we are taught about the Seder night, we are taught that it is a night of perfect symmetry because the key number on the Seder night is four. Which are, which are the four? We've got the four questions of Manishtana. We have the four children. We have the four cups of wine and they represent the four expressions of redemption. See this, this passage from Shmos chapter six, verses six to seven. Bhotsesi, I will take you out. Hitsalti, I will save you. Goalti, I will redeem you. Vilaka, and I will take you. So there are four fours, four cups, four children, four uh, questions, and four expressions of redemption. However, when I was studying the Haggadah, because I wrote a commentary to the Haggadah, I suddenly realized that there's a fifth four. And here it is, a passage that is um, the key text on the Seder night. Vanita v'amata lifnei Hashem elokecha Arami oved avi v'yerid mitzrayma. My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt, etc., etc. And if you have a look, it is the four verses of that text that we expound on the Seder night. Arami oved avi, then the one verse six. Verse 7, and verse 8, those are the four verses whose exposition forms the, the major part of the Haggadah. And I was a little bit disturbed because I, there I was thinking of this perfect symmetry of four fours, and all of a sudden I found five fours. But then as I looked a little further, things got even more puzzling. Have a look at source three. Here is the Mishnah 
from the 10th chapter of Psachim. And it says, Ulufi dato shel ben aviv melamdo, according to the understanding of the child, his parent teaches him, Matchil bignut umesayim b'shevach, you begin with shame and end with praise, you begin with the bad news and end with the good news, and then you see I've bold-faced. V'doresh me'arami oved avi, you expound from the words, my father was a wandering Aramean, until you finish the entire passage. The Mishnah could not be clearer. You have to expound this until you finish the complete passage. Well, the complete passage, if you look, is not four lines. It's five lines. Have a look in source four. This is the fifth line. You see in source two, we've got verses hey, vav, zayin, ches, and here is verse tes, verse nine. And he brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The Mishnah says explicitly, you have to expound the whole passage. Until you've completely finished the passage. The passage we have in the Haggadah is only four lines, but there's a fifth line, which is missing from the Haggadah, despite the fact that the Mishnah says you have to say the full passage. So it turns out that there are five lines, not not four. Have a look now in source five. The Mishnah in Pesachim Chapter 10, paragraph 4, tells us about the Manishtana. Masgulo Kosheni, you pour the second cup of wine, and here the child asks his parent, and if um, the child can't ask, then the parents instruct him, exactly what we say. Only you will note, and I've bold-faced it for you, that there is a question in Manishtana, according to the Mishnah, and the Mishnah is our source, our exclusive source, for how to conduct the Seder service. You see in boldface a question that we don't ask these days. On all other nights, we eat meat that is roasted, stewed, or boiled. But this night, only roasted meat. Wow, hang on. I thought there were four questions. It turns out that there's a fifth question. There's a missing fifth line from the passage that we expound, and there's a missing fifth question. So I began to look. Maybe there are more missing fifths. You remember how we began? There are four cups of wine because of the four expressions of redemption. I will bring you out. I will save you. I will redeem you, and I will take you. If you look in source six, the very next verse, there's a fifth expression of redemption. I will bring you to the land. I'm going to raise my hand to promise to give you to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I'm Lord. So in addition to all those, there is a fifth verse. Okay, so we've now discovered three fifths where we thought there were only four. Fifth question, a fifth verse to be expounded, and a fifth expression of redemption. What about the four cups of wine? Now here we find something very, very interesting. Have a look in source seven. Here is the Talmud, Psachim, page 118a, and this is what we have in our printed editions of the Talmud. Tanu Rabbanan, our rabbis taught, Ravii, the fourth cup, Gomer alav et ha-halel, v'omer halel agadol. You finish the saying the halel, we begin the halel before the meal, over the fourth cup we finish the halel, 
And you say the Hallel HaGadol. Hallel HaGadol is the name of the long psalm we say, Hodu Lashem Kitov Kilelem Chasta. And that is Divrei Rabbi Tarifim. These are the words of Rabbi Tarifim. That is how the text appears in our printed editions of the Talmud. However, if you look in source 8, which is Rashi, on that passage, you will see a little hay and a gimel. The hay and the gimel stand for the words Chochi Garasino. This is how we have the text. Whenever you see those, you'll see that there's an argument about the text. What is the right text? Because don't forget, in those days, they didn't have printing. Things were handwritten, and the end result is lots of errors could occur. So whenever you had a question, what is the correct text? Then Rashi will say, Hochi Garcinon, this is how we have the text. Ravi Gomelov etala. You finish the, the halal over the fourth cup of wine. However, look at source nine. This is already before Rashi. This is Seder Rav Amram Gaon, Rav Amram Gaon in the ninth century. Rav Amram Gaon says something very interesting. If you want to drink an additional cup of wine over and above the four cups, you take a fifth cup of wine and you say over it, In other words, Rav Amram Gaon in the ninth century had a different text to Rashi in the Gemara. His text read, Tanu Rabbanan Chamishi Gomer The fifth cup of wine, you um, finish the Halal and say the Halal Agado. And Rav Amram Gaon says, that's okay. You, if you want to take a fifth cup of wine, you can. And this was the tradition among the Sepharim. Rashi in France and his children and grandchildren, the Balei Tosafot, had the text, the fourth cup. But the Rif and Rabbeinu Hananel and the, and the Sephardim had the text, Kos Chamishi, the fifth cup of wine. And here is how Maimonides, Rambam, rules in the Mishnah Torah in source 10. And again, uh, you'll see it uh, uh, in boldface. V'yesh lo limzog Kos Chamishi, and you can pour a fifth cup of wine, V'lomer alav halel hagadol, and you say over it, Halal Hagado, from Hodu Lashem Kitov until the end. And this fifth cup is not like the other four. The other four are obligatory. You have to have them. But the fifth cup, you may if you want. And if you don't, it's okay. Now let's see what the Ravid has to say. The Ravid, a contemporary of the Rambam, who differed with him on many things. And you will see in Source 11, here is the Ravid. Um, and he says there is certainly a source support for this custom of having a fifth cup of wine because Rabbi Tarfan said in the text that the Rivad had that over the fifth cup of wine you say and and it's a mitzvah to do exactly what he says. Now we're going to see something very extraordinary. We have three views on this fifth cup of wine. Rashi and the Tosavists say it is forbidden to have a fifth cup of wine. The Mishnah only talks about four cups of wine, and that's all you have. So it's forbidden to have a fifth cup. Maimonides says it's permitted to have a fifth cup. And the Ravid says, it's a mitzvah to have a fifth cup. So here you have a major argument. 
between the great sages of the early Middle Ages. What do you do when you have an argument like that? Well, do you know there's a cup of wine that we call Koshel Eliyahu, the cup of Elijah? And I always used to be told as a child that that cup was for Elijah, who's going to come and tell us when the Mashiach has come, and then we'll drink a cup of wine with Elijah. Uh, and of course, when I was very young, and we only had really rather bad Kiddush wine, I always assumed that's why the Mashiach never came, because the Kiddush wine was so terrible that Elijah really didn't want to drink it. However, it now turns out that this cup of Elijah is for completely different reasons. We are told that when Elijah comes, he will answer all the unresolved arguments between the rabbi. And that is why we pour a fifth cup of wine and place it on the table. And we don't know whether to follow Maimonides, who says you may drink it, Rashi, who says you mustn't drink it, and Rivet, who says you should drink it. What do we do? We wait for Elijah to come and tell us who is right, Rashi or Rivet or Rambo. And that is why it's called Elijah's cup. Nothing to do with Mashiach and everything to do with what is known as um, Elijah's role in solving all unresolved halachic disputes. So now we have seen that not only is there a fifth question, a fifth verse, a fifth expression of redemption, but there is also a fifth cup, which has been there all along, except we never really realized what it was doing there. What about the four children? Is there a fifth child? Well, it's very interesting. The Torah tells us that when the Israelites finally left Egypt, v'chamushim, they left Egypt chamushim, and chamushim is normally translated as armed. They had weapons with them. And again, this is Rashi on that passage at the beginning of Beshalach. Dava acher, Rashi says, chamushim might mean something else, not just armed. Chamushim echad mechamisha Yatsu, only a fifth of the Israelites left Egypt, but four-fifths, 80% of them, died in the plague of darkness. Those were the 80% who didn't want to leave Egypt. I don't know what that means, but we know that is the rate of assimilation pretty much in many, many parts of the diaspora today. Between three and four, four and five, we are losing Jews. And it was the Lubavitcher Rebbe who said there is a fifth child. He said the four children of Haggadah represent four different generations. The Chacham, the wise son, those were the Jews who came from Eastern Europe who spoke Yiddish and kept Yiddishkeit and they knew about Judaism. Then came the Rasha, then came the first generation born in America or Britain who just wanted to lose their Judaism. Then came the generation of the Tam, of the simple child, who really didn't know what to make of his from grandparents and completely assimilated parents and was just um, mazot. He didn't know what was going on. Comes to the fourth generation, the child no longer knows how to ask a Jewish question. And then comes the fifth generation, the child who isn't there. All the other children are sitting at the table, but by the fifth generation, there's the fifth child who isn't there. So it turns out that instead of four fours, there are actually five fives. Five expressions of redemption, five cups of wine, five questions, five verses, and five children. And the reason that there only appear to be four is because in the dark days of dispersion, when we didn't have a state of Israel, the rabbis did not want to quote the line, I brought you to this land. They didn't want to quote that expression of redemption, I will bring you to the land. They did not want to have that fifth cup of wine because, after all, how can this be the festival of freedom if we're living in the diaspora and still without a home and without rights? They did not want 
to uh, ask that question about the meat being only roast because that's the question that you only ask when the temple stands and we're eating the paschal sacrifice and of course they didn't mention the child who isn't there because he wasn't there but i think now that we have a land we can realize that there always was that fifth stage and we're living in a time when jews are in israel where jews are coming back to the tradition even though we're losing many and therefore, even though this is an incredibly, incredibly difficult year, and I feel for every one of you, and I feel for everyone who is suffering in the world today, Jew and non-Jew alike, but let us nonetheless express our thanks that as Jews, we do have freedom today. And let us, as I said right at the beginning, make sure we share a little of our bread with others, a little matzah with others, because even if it is the bread of affliction this year, when you reach out, even in your affliction, and uh, help someone else, make somebody else feel that you care about them, then you have begun the road to your freedom. So um, I'm not sure whether I can say Chag Sameach. We will try and rejoice despite everything, but a Chag Kasher certainly. And may we celebrate this Pesach separately so that in a year's time, we can all celebrate it together. Thank you very much indeed. I'd like to ask you just a few questions. So the first from Jamie Schachter, who's asking if now the halakha could permit us to share these five cups, five children, right? can we insert them into the Haggadah today? Uh, there was a, a wonderful rabbi, very great rabbi, called Rabbi Menachem Kasha, who um, did this multi-volume work called the Torah Shlema. And he wrote very persuasively that nowadays we can and should drink the fifth cup of wine. Um, the Rambam says in any case it's permitted. Ashkenazim will find it a little difficult, though I think Rabbi Kash was an Ashkenazi. So um, it seems to me that as long as you do it absolutely and clearly the way Maimonides says, that is as a voluntary cup rather than an obligatory cup, you can do it. And he's told you exactly how to do it. Just over that psalm, We've already spoken about how to hold on hope, which is really through giving. It's a beautiful message. We have many students on here and who have been on previous calls who are seniors who are in the moment before graduating college and their whole final semester is totally upended. And I think they're looking for reasons to hold on, on to hope at this moment and to still celebrate uh, amidst the pain that they're feeling. What message would you have for them? Look, I've never been in this situation, and it, I don't want to sound as if this is an easy situation. It's a very, very, very difficult situation. Um, I, I'd like to know what it would feel like to see my whole diary, my whole life plan torn up overnight. It's, it's, it's really, really difficult. Um, the consolations are these. Number one, be aware that everyone in the world is facing this problem. You know, you're, it's, it's not just you, every... Everyone is facing it. And number two, I promise you, but I absolutely promise you, Hashem will give you the strength to get through uh, when you have to get through. I mean, I, my, my situation was, was, was absolutely trivial in comparison. I just had Shavuos happening over my key exams. I mean, in my finals, you know, my whole future depended on it. And Shavuos, was, Shavuos and Shabbat were the three consecutive days. So I, while everyone else had finished the tripos, as we call the exams in Cambridge, I had to go off to another town and be invigilated. And my mind was clearly not on my exams. And I thought, you know, wow, this is terrible. But I'd have a very long 
art. And uh, I did get my whatever you call it in America, summa cum laude or whatever they call it, first class honors. In other words, you know, you don't lose in the long run um, by having these, the, this situation. I don't want to minimize the difficulty. I really don't. And therefore, I just want to say what you have to do. Just take it day by day. Use the time in the way that you feel most speaks to you. One way of doing so is to go deeper into your subject than you would have done otherwise. And that is an incredible gift. Uh, but another one is, you know, just whatever really, really um, fills you with, with some appetite for life and for intellect, whether it's listening to music or reading some great novels you never had time for, or just helping others, which is probably the best thing of the lot. So one way or another, everyone is in the same situation. You will not personally be penalized. Your own teachers will tell you in the fullness of time how to get through this and just take it day by day and don't lose heart. Thank you. That's a great message. In the interest of time, I want to ask one more question. That came from um, Caleb, who's the president of University of Iowa Hillel. And I'm going to amend the question a little bit. He asked, which of your books, for someone who's new to learning with you, would you say is a great start? And as part of this question, I'd like to ask you, I know you have a new book coming out soon. Would you share with us a little bit about that? Um, the book of mine that I always recommend to people because it, it's the most personal account I, I gave of Judaism is the one called In America, A Letter in the Scroll. It's called something different in England. For, it's called Radical Then, Radical Now in England, because as you mentioned in the beginning, in England, my books are read by non-Jews as well as Jews, and non-Jews don't know what a scroll is. It doesn't speak to them. But a letter in the scroll is my personal account of Judaism. Uh, the new book, Morality, is really about the way we have shifted in the last half century from we to I. We've become much, much more individualistic, and that has good consequences, but it has some catastrophic consequences. And we have seen both sides of it in the last few days. I don't know if you've had this in the States, if you had this in the States, of people panic buying, of people stockpiling food, of people uh, disobeying. Yeah, we, we, you can't find toilet paper in the stores. Yeah. Somebody was filmed, you know, wheeling six cartons of toilet paper, I mean, with 96 rolls in each, you know, and I thought, and the guy needs 600 rolls of toilet paper. <laughs> this is a worse plague than I thought it was. Um, so um, one way or another, the, these are people putting I ahead of we. They're, they're only concerned with their own interests. They're really um, destroying all sorts of opportunities for other people. There are people who are taking risks and not keeping a social distance. They're gathering together in crowds. The, the shelves of supermarkets are bare. Um, they're now moving from supermarkets to pharmacies so that we're running out of drugs, painkillers, and so on. Um, and that is what happens when you emphasize the I. When you emphasize the we, something extraordinary happens. You get the most heroic behavior from doctors, from nurses, from healthcare workers, from people who are stacking the shelves in the supermarkets, who are helping out in the pharmacies. We have groups growing up everywhere in Britain of people volunteering to help the elderly and the isolated. Just yesterday or the day before, um, the British government put out a request, the Minister of Health, Matt Hancock, could we have some volunteers to help assist the National Health Service? In one day, over half a million people, 504,000 people volunteered. These are people who live the we. And I've been arguing in the book that we need to move to give much more emphasis on the we than the I. And oddly enough, of course, because I didn't guess 
this terrible uh, pandemic was going to happen when I wrote the book. But oddly enough, almost exactly when the book was published, we had this situation which showed how terrible the I can be and how elevating and inspiring the we can be. So I hope it's the book that uh, charts a way forward for society when all this is over. It's a way of saying, what can we learn from what is happening now? That wraps up our episode. We'll be back next time to hear from Julie Lithgott-Hames, writer, author, and human on her experiences as a black and biracial woman growing up in white spaces. Do I want to be in an environment where I seem to be like the answer to whatever goal is on their spreadsheet? I don't. Then I feel tokenized or I feel like I'm checking some diversity box that someone else got. I don't want that. It's like the golden rule. We'll talk about all that and more next time. Be sure to tune in wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is a production at Hillel at Home and the Global Student Experiences team at Hillel International. This episode was produced by Michael Kagan, edited by Benjamin Lawford. Our theme music is by Baron Grant. If you like this show, please rate, subscribe, review, and share. You can listen to this podcast via Spotify, 